Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from a book entitled The Private Key to Heaven. It was written by Thomas Brooks, who lived from 1608 to 1680. He was the English nonconformist preacher and writer who died in 1680, as I said. Well, he's talking about objections to prayer, private prayer. And objection number six is, we are too weak to pray. Sixthly, and lastly, others may further object and say, we would be often in private with God. We would give ourselves up to closet prayer, but that we can no sooner shut our closet doors, but a multitude of infirmities, weaknesses, and vanities do face us and rise up against us. Our hearts are full of distempers and follies, and our bodies, say some, are under great indispositions. And our souls, say others, are under present indispositions. And how then can we seek the face of God in a corner? How can we wrestle with God in our closets? Well, now to this objection, I shall give these six answers. We will not cover all six today, but let's begin. Number one, no one is strong enough. If these kinds of reasonings or arguings were sufficient to shut private prayer out of doors where lives that man or woman, that husband or wife, that father or child, master or servant that, that would ever be found in the practice of that duty? Where is there a person under heaven whose heart is not full of infirmities, weaknesses and follies and vanities and whose body and soul is not too often indisposed to closet duties? If they sin against thee, for there is no one that sins not, it says in First Kings, for there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not, Ecclesiastes 7. Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure for my sin, Proverbs 20. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean, not one, said Job. If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, yet shalt thou plunge me in the ditch, and mine own clothes shall abhor me again, Job. If I justify myself, my own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me perverse again, Job. And enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified, Psalm 143. For in many things we offend all, James. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, John. Such that affirm that men may be fully perfect in this life, or without sin in this life, they do affirm that which is expressly contrary to the scriptures last cited, and to the universal experience of all saints, who daily feel and lament over that body of sin and death that they bear about with them. Yea, they do affirm that which is quite contrary to the very state of and constitution of all the saints in this life. In every saint, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Galatians 5.17 In every good man there are two men, the old man and the new. The one must be daily put on and the other daily put off, Ephesians 4. All saints have a law in their members rebelling against the law of their minds so that the good that they would do, they do not, and the evil that they would not do, that they do. They have two contrary principles in them, 
from whence proceed two manner of actions, motions, and inclinations, continually opposite one to another. Hence it is that there is a continual combat in them, like the struggling of the twins in Rebecca's womb. An absolute perfection is peculiar to the triumphant state of God's elect in heaven. Heaven is the only privileged place where no unclean thing can enter in. That is the only place where neither sin nor Satan shall ever get footing. Such as dream of an absolute perfection in this life do confound and jumble heaven and earth together, the state of the church militant with the state of the church triumphant, which are certainly distinct both in time and place and in order, measure, and concomitance. That is, things that accompany or are connected with each other concomitants. This dangerous opinion of absolute perfection in this life shakes the very foundation of religion and overthrows the gospel of grace. It renders the satisfaction of Christ and all his great transactions null and void. It tells the world that there is no need of faith, of repentance, of ordinances, of watchfulness. They that say they have no sin say they have no need of the blood of Christ to cleanse them from sin. Such as say they have no sin say they have no need of faith to rest upon Christ for imputed righteousness to justify their persons. Such as say they have no sin say they have no need of Christ as king to subdue their lusts, nor a priest to expiate offenses, nor as prophet to teach and instruct them, nor as a savior to save them from their sins or from wrath to come. They that have a perfect righteousness of their own need not be beholden to Christ for his pure, perfect, spotless, matchless righteousness. Such as are without sin have no cause to repent of sin, nor yet to watch against sin. Such as are perfect cannot say we are unprofitable servants. But are they indeed just? Then they must live by faith. Are they men and not angels? Then they must repent. Now he commands all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17.30. Surely the best of men are but men at the best. Oh, how bad those men must be who make God himself a liar. But if these men are absolutely perfect, how comes it to pass that they are afflicted and diseased as other men? How comes it to pass that they eat and drink and sleep and buy and sell and die as other men? Are these things consistent with an absolute perfection? Surely not. An absolute perfection is not a step short of heaven. It is heaven on this side of heaven. And they that would obtain it must step to heaven before they have it. Number two, this objection opposes other kinds of prayer also. I answer that this objection lies as strong against family prayer and against all other kind of prayer as it does against closet prayer. He that shall upon any grounds make this objection, a great bugbear, that is an imaginary monster to scare children, a bugbear to, to scare his soul from closet prayer. He, he may upon the same ground make it a great bugbear to scare his soul not only from all other kinds of prayer, but from all other duties of religion also, whether private or public. The spirit of this objection fights against all religion at once, and therefore you should say to it, 
as Christ said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Number three. Thirdly, I answer, it is not the infirmities and weaknesses of a Christian that are seen, lamented, bewailed, and resisted that can obstruct or hinder the efficacy and success of his prayers. Uh, let me clear up this in a few sentences. Jonah, you know, was a man full of sinful passions and other weaknesses, and yet his prayer was very prevalent with God. So Elijah's prayers were exceeding prevalent with God. He could open and shut heaven at his pleasure, and yet was subject to like passions as we are. Elijah was a man of extraordinary sanctity and holiness, a man that lived in heaven while he dwelt on earth. And then Enoch, like he walked with God, and yet he was subject to like passions as we are. God did, in an eminent way, communicate to him his counsel and secrets. He lay in the bosom of the Father, and yet was a man subject to like passions as we are. He was a very powerful and prevalent prophet. His very name imports as much. Elijah signifies my strong God. In First Kings 17, it is Elahu, that is, the Lord, he is my strong God, and yet subject to like passions as we are. He was a man much in fasting and prayer. He was an inferior mediator between God and his people, and yet subject to like passions as we are. And not because some from hence might object and say, no wonder if such a man as he was could by his prayers open and shut heaven at his pleasure. But I am a poor, weak, low, sinful, and unworthy creature. I am full of infirmities, weaknesses, and passions. And shall my prayers ever find access to God and acceptance with God or gracious answers and returns from God? Now to clear up this objection and to remove this discouragement out of the thoughts and hearts of poor sinners, the Holy Ghost addeth this clause, that he was not a God nor an angel, but a man. And such a man as was not exempted from common infirmities, for he had his passions, frailties, and weaknesses, as well as other saints, intimating to us that infirmities in the lowest saints should no more prejudice the acceptance and success of their prayers with God than they did in Elijah himself. The word passion sometimes signifies first a motion of the sensual appetite arising from the imagination of good or ill with some commotion of the body. Secondly, sometimes passions signify sinful infirmities, sinful perturbations of the mind. Thirdly, sometimes passion is taken more strictly for the special affection of sinful anger and wrath, which Chrysostom calls brevis doman, a short devil. It makes a, a man speak he knows not what, as you may see in Jonah, and to do he knows not what, as you may see in Saul, now, in these two last senses, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and yet a man so potent with God that by private prayer he could do even what he desired in the court of heaven. In 1 Samuel 21, you may read of David's round lies and of his other failings, infirmities, and unseemly carriages before Achish, king of Gath, and for which he was turned out of the king's presence under the notion of being a madman. 
And yet, at that very time, he prays and prevails with God for favor, mercy, and deliverance. I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. But when was this? Read the title of the psalm, and you shall find it. It says, A Psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. In Numbers 20, verses 10 to 12, Moses' infirmities are pointed out. First, you have there his immoderate anger, his speaking to the people when he should have spoken to the rock, his smiting of it when he should only have spoken to it with the rod in his hand and smiting it twice as in a pang of passion and impatience. Then you have his distrusting of the Lord's word. Later, his reviling of the people when he should have convinced them, Hear now, ye rebels. He seems to be so offended at his commission that he can hardly forbear murmurings. Must we fetch water out of this rock, he said. Mark that word, must we. Oh, how is the meekest man in all the world transported into passion and anger and unbelief and hurried into sad indecencies? And yet there was not a man on earth whose prayers were so powerful and prevalent with God as Moses were. So King Asa was a man full of infirmities and weaknesses. He relies on the king of Syria and not on the Lord. He is very impatient and under a great rage under the seer's reproof. He imprisons the seer. He oppressed some of the people, or as the Hebrew hath it, he crushed. Or he trampled upon some of the people at the same time. And being greatly diseased in his feet, he sought to the physicians and not to the Lord. And yet, this man's prayer was wonderful, prevalent with God. Second Chronicles 14, verses 11 to 15. The saints' infirmities can never make void those gracious promises by which God stands engaged to hearken to the prayers of his people. God's hearing of our prayers doth not depend upon sanctification, but upon Christ's intercession. Not upon what we are in ourselves, but upon what we are in the Lord Jesus. Both our persons and our prayers are acceptable in the Beloved. When God hears our prayers, it is neither for our own sakes, nor yet for our prayers' sakes, but it is for his own sake, and his Son's sake, and his glory's sake, and his promises' sake. Certainly God will never cast off his people for their infirmities. First, it is the glory of a man to pass by infirmities. Oh, how much more then must it be the glory of God to pass by the infirmities of his people? Secondly, saints are children. And what father will cast off his children for their infirmities and weaknesses? Thirdly, saints are members of Christ's body. And what man will cut off a member because of a scab or wart that is upon it? What man will cut off his nose, saith Luther, because, Martin Luther said, because there is some filth in it? Fourthly, saints are Christ's purchase. They are his possession, his inheritance. Now what man is there that will cast away or cast off his purchase, his possession, his inheritance because of thorns, bushes, or briars that grow upon it? Fifthly, saints are in a marriage covenant with God. Now what husband is there that will cast off his wife 
for her failings and infirmities. So long as a man is in covenant with God, his infirmities can't cut him off from God's mercy and grace. Now, it is certain, a man may have very many infirmities upon him and yet not break his covenant with God. For no sin breaks a man's covenant with God, but such as unties the marriage knot. As in other marriages, every offense or infirmity doth not disannul the marriage union. It is only the breach of the marriage vow, adultery, that unties the marriage knot. And so here it is only those sins which break the covenant which untie the marriage knot between God and the soul. When men freely subject themselves to any lust as a new master, or when men take another husband. Men do this when they enter into a league with sin or the world, when they make a new covenant with hell and death. Now from these mischiefs God secures his chosen ones. In a word, if God should cast off his people for their infirmities, then none of the sons or daughters of Adam could be saved. For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good, and sinneth not. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Now, if God will not cast off his people for their infirmities, then certainly he will not cast off the prayers of his people because of those invincible infirmities that hang upon them. And therefore, our infirmities should not discourage us or take us off from closet prayer or from any other duties of religion. That's from Thomas Brooks, The Private Key to Heaven. We're in the middle of an objection being answered. We'll come back to it next time. Program note here, we are going to be reading more of Thomas Brooks this week, about maybe three times per week until this book is finished. We will be reading uh, Bridges. We'll, we'll do Bridges as we have been doing, and Gurnall as we have been doing. Um, but the idea is to... Um, finish the books that can be finished and uh, rather than going once a week after a while we'll be able to give you more of one person per week you'll understand it as we go on this is the week we will do brooks and catch up with him a little bit well thank you so much for being here do look around the site whole lot of other things that i know that you'll be interested in if you just look thank you so much This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and we're releasing this audio on the 16th of May, 2023. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.